Go ahead and take your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 this evening. Verse number 1 is where we'll begin speaking. The past two weeks we have spoken in a sermon series, a little mini-series entitled Entrusted. Speaking of the roles and responsibilities that God has entrusted us with and making sure that we're doing a good job with them. And more so than just a good job, a job that God would want done. You see, in our own estimation, sometimes it's easy to say, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm doing pretty good at this whole dad thing, or I'm doing pretty good at this whole giving out the gospel thing. We've got to make sure that we're doing it according to God's will. And that's really the only way to be happy as a Christian, is living right in the center of God's will. And so that's what we've been studying. The first week we looked at the fact that God had entrusted us with the gospel. He did not trust it to angels, even though I'm sure they have beautiful singing voices and and they can give important messages like the fact that Jesus would be born of a virgin and that his name would be called Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us. They give important messages like, uh, he is not here for he is risen, as he said. They give good messages, but the only one that could give the message of the gospel was those that had witnessed the power of the gospel. And in order to witness it, you must be a partaker of it. And so we looked at God entrusting us with a dispensation of the gospel. And then the next week, or last week, we looked at uh, God's plan for homes and the roles and the responsibilities of each party uh, within the home. We looked at the role of the father, the mother, the child, and the parents. And we tried to make sure that our homes were glorifying to God. And this week, we look at God's plan for his church. Ephesians chapter number four, verse number one, the Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, And one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse number 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the time that you've given us around your word this evening. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, Lord. Give me exactly the words that I should say. And Lord, I pray that you would receive all the honor and glory from the message tonight. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Sometimes I wonder if we're doing church right. I think often on what things the Lord might want us to do differently if he were the one 
in charge of this place. Hopefully he is. But I wonder sometimes if maybe uh, American culture, the tradition that has been passed down from us through our Baptist heritage, I wonder sometimes if these things have not somehow allowed us to stray from church that would please God. By the way, when I say this, I'm not necessarily speaking of a worship style or uh, any given type of music or uh, any particular style of preaching. I'm talking about church. You know, the body of believers that are a called out assembly sent to witness to the entire world. To go make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe whatsoever things the Lord had commanded us. See, even the fact that we identify our church as this moment, this gathering where we sit to listen to a man speak, just the fact that that is what we call church shows how errored our logic is. Church is not what we are doing. Church is who we are. Church is the fact that you have been saved and you have been baptized into a local assembly of believers that is meant For a purpose. We have the highest calling of any institution in the world that we would spread the message of Christ's love to the world. Sometimes I wonder if we're not just way off with the way that we're doing it. You see, my dad, uh, several years ago, bought a bulldozer. He'd probably get mad at me for telling you. But he has a bulldozer, and unfortunately, we we don't have a trailer big enough to move it, so if you want to borrow it, you're just out of luck. We don't have a way of moving it. They delivered it to our, our ranch, and that's where it stayed, and will probably stay its entire life. There's no way to get it back home. Like I said, we don't have a piece of equipment big enough to get it back, because it's quite large. I think it weighs 17,000 pounds. Uh, Now, it's not a huge bulldozer, as you might be thinking. It's kind of like a medium-sized one. It's not real small. It's definitely not really large, as you've seen some of those. But there is not a tree on our place or a pile of dirt on our property that that thing cannot move. It's really amazing when you think about it that that bulldozer has the exact same engine in it that our church buses do. But given the gear ratios and the design of the bulldozer, that thing is incredibly powerful. In just a few minutes, I've seen my dad knock over trees that took years and years and years to grow. I mean, it has immense amounts of power at its disposal. Right now, though, it is utterly useless. The starter won't work. At first, we thought it was a battery issue, so we changed the batteries. We brought the batteries home and we charged the batteries. Still, the bulldozer doesn't work. And you can go out there today and you can look at that bulldozer and you can say, Man, that is a big bulldozer. I bet that thing can do a whole lot of work. And you're right. You can say, Man, that is just a marvel of modern engineering. And by the way, you'd be right in saying that. They're pretty awesome little machines. But the power at that bulldozer's disposal is utterly useless because when you turn the key, nothing happens. When I read in scripture about God's church, man, the power that it has at its disposal. 
See, it took the precious blood of Christ, not of corruptible things as of silver and gold, but the incorruptible blood of Jesus that redeemed the church and bought the church. Not only did he redeem the church with his precious blood, but he gave his church his eternal and unchanging word. It has the power to change souls. It has the power to convict sinners. I mean, God's word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Not only did he redeem the church with his blood, not only did he give the church his word, but he filled the church with his power by sending the Holy Spirit of God to live in every individual believer. Man, the church has all the ability to be a powerful institution in this world. So why isn't it? Why aren't we? Sometimes I wonder if we're doing church the way that God would want church to be done. This evening I want to preach to a sermon, only a two-point sermon, so all y'all should kind of perk up and say, Brother Andrew always has at least three points, only two points tonight. But it's a sermon that might speak to our failures as a church. And it's a sermon that ought to instruct us as we move forward. Number one, the church of Jesus Christ, the way he meant it to be, should do this. Number one, endeavor to keep unity. The Bible says in verse number three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In fact, in verse number one, the apostle Paul the writer of the book of Ephesians, he, he says this, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. You see, he used this type of phrase many times in scripture. He would say something like walk worthy. Uh, one time he uses it in the book of Philippians, verse number one and 27. He says, only let your conversation or your manner of living, the way you walk amongst unbelievers, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Are we walking worthy according to the greatness of the gospel that was delivered to us? That's his question. And he's telling us that we should walk worthy of that gospel. He uses the same type of uh, phrase in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord. Are we worthy? Are we walking worthy? Are we living a life that is worthy of the goodness of the benefits of our God? Are we walk, walking worthy of Him? But in this particular chapter, he is speaking of our calling. Our occupation of sorts, the Bible says, walk worthy of the vocation, your calling wherewith ye are called. What is this calling? Well, I think we find that answer in verse number three. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. The great calling of the church of Jesus was that we would be unified in our pursuit. That there would be no divisions among us. That is the calling that the Apostle Paul is speaking of. That we would endeavor to be unified. Sin divides, by the way. It has since the beginning. It was sin that divided Adam and Eve from, from the Lord. It was sin that separated God's blessings from the nation of Israel. It is still sin today that separates the New Testament believer from the power of the Holy Spirit every day in his life. It has always been sin that separates and divides. 
It is sin that keeps the husband separated from his wife. It is sin that separates the father from his children. It is sin that separates all of these people. Sin separates. And it is in this world of sin that we live and breathe and move. And God doesn't want us to be a part of that. He wants us to be unified. He wants his church to be called out from the world. He wants us to be distinctly different. More than just in the way that we are holy. He wants us to be different in the way that we are unified. Man, if, if, if you watch the evening news for any moment in time, you'll quickly realize, I don't believe America has ever been more divided than we are right now. We are divided on everything. We are divided on important matters such as when does life begin? I read today that there were religious men who were gathering to bless uh, abortion clinics in New York. I'm telling you right now, that is a crying shame that anybody with any sort of religion in this world could ever bless what is taking place in New York City right now. Uh, I'm appalled at the fact that we can't even agree on simple morality issues. I mean, to me, it's wrong to kill something with a heartbeat, uh, but... But, you know, if we find a bacterial growth on Mars, man, we found life on Mars, but a heartbeat and a moving fetus inside of a mother, that's not life? What a shame we can't agree on things like this. Man, it broke my heart to hear those folks in there as they just finished the vote cheering at the decision that had been made. We can't agree on simple morality issues. Politically, we are a mess. I mean, don't even want to go too much into that for fear I'll lose friends. But man alive, what a shame our world is. This is crazy. I never thought I'd get like this. I mean, used to, sure, politicians would jab one way and jab one one way or another. Now debates are nothing but professional mudslinging contests. I mean, this is unbelievable. Religiously, we're more divided than we've ever been. I would say denominationally, we're certainly divided. And I I believe that there are certain things we ought to divide over, by the way. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that we ought to be best friends with every denomination because every denomination does not believe like we believe. If you believe that you've got to be baptized to be saved, I'm sorry, I disagree with you. I believe there is no work in this world, nothing that could earn your way to heaven apart from Jesus Christ and his sinless blood shed on Calvary for you. So while we can be friends and we can certainly be friendly, I will not agree on certain points of doctrine with you. But we are so divided, even in, in what I would consider Baptists, we're divided. And we can't agree on what type of outfit we should wear in the pulpit whether or not drums belong on a stage, whether or not you can use music from Ray Bolts or not. I mean, it's really crazy. And some of these things seem so silly, but I'm telling you, the devil has done his best to rip the church apart. Go into one of these churches where you see uh, arrows pointing one way to the traditional service and another way to the contemporary service. Go into a service where you see the teenagers singing a completely different style of song than the adults. The devil's introduced division. And Jesus prayed in in, in John chapter 17, three different times in his longest prayer. He said, Lord, I pray that you would keep them. Lord, I pray that you would allow, give them. I've given them your word. May they keep your word. And three different times he said, May they be one, even as I and the Father are one. 
Three different times his prayer was that the church would stay unified. We have certainly failed on many accounts, but I would say of all the failures of the church, it has been our lack of unity. And the Bible gives us instructions here on how we can have unity in the church. Number one, we must, in verse number two, implement the characteristics of Christ. Notice in verse number two, the Bible says, if we're going to walk worthy of this vocation wherewith we are called, and that vocation is that we would endeavor to keep the spirit of, or the, the, the unity of the spirit, here's the way that we can do this. Number one, in verse number two, with all lowliness. Now, lowliness is quite similar to humility. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. You see, Jesus was our example of humility. He came to this earth and uh, he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And he was the servant of all. And he took a washcloth and, and washed his disciples' feet. And yet he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is our example in humility. But my, how we have misconstrued what humility is. You know, humility is such a moving target because the moment you think you have it is the moment you lost it. The moment you say you've got it, boy, you just showed everybody you don't have it at all. Humility is a moving target. And so for, for fear of, you know, not being able to attain it, so many preachers have not even really spoken on what it is. But I'll tell you what humility is not. Humility is not this idea of self-degradation. It is not insecurity. It's one thing to, to think that you don't have talents and, man, I'm just not as good as the next guy. By the way, God created you the way that he created you. He didn't make a mistake when he created you. He gave you the spiritual gifts that he gave you. He gave you the personality he gave you. God says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He did not make a mistake with you. So don't sit there and be in the molly grubs all the time saying, man, I just wish I could sing. I wish I could preach. I, I wish I could do more. No, God has given you all power to do everything he wants you to do. But so often we put on this faux self-degradation where we say, well, you know, you know, people that can sing, you'll go up to them and say, hey, you did a good job on that song this morning. Oh, you, you know, I can't sing that well. It's fake. It's fake. Look, you can sing if you can sing, and you can't sing if you can't sing. And it's not wrong if you can sing to say, hey, I can carry a tune in the bucket. What humility is not is saying, oh, you know, I just, you know, I just lucked out on that one. No, you didn't. If you have a gift from God, use that gift for God, and don't act like it surprises everybody when you utilize that gift for Him. Humility is not acting like you're the worst or acting like you don't have some type of capability. That is fake. That's hypocritical. What humility is, is understanding your place in God's grand design. Humility is simply acknowledging the fact that there are certain things that you can do for the Lord and there are certain things that you cannot do apart from the Lord. For instance, I spent all afternoon preparing this message. This message has been on my heart all week. I've been meditating on this thought. I've been thinking on this thought. 
And I spent all afternoon preparing this message. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, as much as I prepared, it will accomplish nothing if God does not get involved with it. Oh, sure, there may be somebody say, Brother Andrew was really on fire tonight. So what? I've heard guys be on fire and not say anything biblical for over an hour and a half. What does it matter if I'm on fire? I spent all afternoon preparing. I used all my experience. I used all my training to craft this sermon for this moment, for this congregation. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, if God is not involved in the conviction of Christians, it will do nothing for him. Humility is just simply acknowledging that you can do certain things, but God is ultimately the producer of all good things. The Bible says that Paul planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth or he that watereth anything. He that planteth and watereth are one. And in a sermon where we're speaking about unity, don't you think that planting and waterers, planters and waterers being one is kind of significant? Oh, sure, we can do all of the planting and the watering and the nurturing, but at the end of the day, God produces the fruit. Humility is just recognizing your place in that and where you can no longer affect it where God has to take over. That's humility. Lowliness of mind, that's what the Bible's instructing us. Our churches need to be humble, recognizing that there is no sermon, there is no song, there is no special that should be prepared without the the desire and the prayer in in, in the heart of the person performing that they would say, God... May you have your hand of blessing on this. How many specials have been sung and never a prayer prayed? How many choir songs chosen and never somebody taken the time to say, God, is this what you want sung? How many sermons have been preached in churches all across this nation where the pastor just got a little too busy to pray and ask God's blessing on it? No, that's not what we need. We need people who will admit where their limitations are and where God has to take over. We need lowliness in the church. Secondly, we need meekness. That's what the Bible says, with all lowliness and meekness. Now, humility and meekness are often uh, tied together in Scripture. But what meekness is, is it is the word literally means domesticated strength. I know that's an odd way of saying that, but probably the best picture for you, if you want to remember it, is is how a rider trains a horse to fulfill his will. You see, the horse has substantially more strength than the rider. The horse has the strength, in many cases, to throw the rider off if he wanted to. The horse has the ability to go right when the rider wants to go left. The horse has the ability to walk when the rider wants to run. The horse has the ability to run when the rider wants to walk. But domesticated strength is that horse's power brought into subjection to the rider's purpose for his life. You see, it's not that the horse doesn't have strength. It's that that strength has now been directed in the right way. It's the horse, when the rider says go right, the horse goes right. What we need in churches is people that will fill the roles that God wants them to do and just say, God, use me however you want me to. 
God, use me wherever you can. It doesn't matter if I get glory. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter if I get applause. Lord, frankly, it doesn't even matter if I see results. If you want me somewhere, dear God, put me there and allow me the grace to stay there. That's lowliness. Strength that is used for the master's purposes. Not only lowliness, but meekness. Number three, the Bible says long-suffering. Long-suffering is patience with people. You ever grow tired of people? You ever just wish the church had a room that was like lockable from the inside where you just went and it was dark and nobody came there and bothered you? I do. I try going to my office, but it seems like that's where people look for me first. And and every once in a while, what happens is people get a little frustrated with other people. And it certainly happens with a Baptist church, no doubt about it. But what the church needs is people that will be patient with other people. We have experienced long-suffering and patience more than any other people in the world. The Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, but is long-suffering to us, usward. God has been so long-suffering with us. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that in my life, I'll be on the road driving. And sometimes, honestly, I got under conviction about this a long time ago, but I'll see this. When someone cuts us off, we immediately criticize other people. Usually what it sounds like is, you idiot. Didn't you know that lane was ending back there? I mean, there was a sign that said merge. Is this your first time driving in Joshua? You moron. But then we make a mistake. And we're quite repentant. Not of what we just said about the previous driver, but we'll say, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And it's like we expect the person in the other car to forgive us immediately. Because we're admitting our mistake. But it's so easy to expect others to be long-suffering and us not practice being long-suffering. The next time someone cuts you off, I want you to remember this moment in this sermon. And I want you to think how hard it is to keep from criticizing someone else. So how hard it is to to keep from pointing out their failures and, and the times when they mess up. I want you to remember the next time you get cut off here on 174, the next time you're trying to turn right over there by Chick-fil-A and somebody busts a U-turn in there and, and all that confusion takes place. I want you to remember this moment and say, you know what? How our church needs to be long-suffering with other church members. It's easy for somebody who you know well to get on your nerves. Certainly. But our church needs to be long-suffering with one another. The example of our long-suffering is Jesus Christ. He's been so long-suffering with us, why can we not extend it to those around us? The characteristics of Christ are, number one, lowliness. That's humility. Meekness, that's domesticated strength or strength under control. With long-suffering, that's patience with people and forbearing. Forbearing. That means putting someone in front of you. Putting your needs on the back burner and putting their needs in the forefront. Forbearing. Bearing out in front. 
That's what the Bible teaches us to do in Philippians chapter 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. The example is that we would look upon the needs of others more than the needs that we have forbearance. Our churches need these characteristics. We need to implement these characteristics. And then I want you to see the final characteristic that is the bow on top of the package. Verse number, uh, uh, verse number one or verse number two. Lowliness, which is humility. Meekness, which is uh, a domesticated strength. Long suffering, which is patience with people. Forbearing, which is putting others needs in front of ours. And then the Bible says one another in Love. Love is the bow that wraps the package. Bow is the backbone to the body of the church of Christ. The Bible says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love for one another. It wearies me that we can't even like each other, much less like sinners. I mean, why would you have a passion for the lost and dying world? They're at enmity with God if you can't even get along with your brother and sister in this church. It, the Bible is teaching us here that we would use the example of Jesus and, and, and study his ministry and realize that Peter wasn't perfect and John wasn't perfect and Andrew wasn't perfect, yet Jesus loved them and was patient and long-suffering with them. The church needs to exercise the characteristics of Christ. And when we do this, the Bible teaches us that the world will take note of it. The best evangelical tool that the church has is our love for one another. I encourage people to take tracts outside of this church. I encourage people to go door knocking. But if you study scripture, you'll find that the thing that the world would be drawn to about Christ was the love of his disciples for the other disciples. When we're at war with everybody, the world just looks at us and says, oh, you're no different than the Republicans and Democrats. Oh, you're no different than, than, than my home life. I mean, sure, I can't get along with my wife. She can't get along with me. We just make it work. You're no different than every other thing in this world. Why? Because sin divides. Only love brings us together. And Christ is love. The Bible says if we walk in the light as he is a light, we will have fellowship with one another. If we're going to have unity as a church, we must seek to have the characteristics of Christ. Secondly, not only should we emphasize the characteristics of Christ, but we should, number two, emphasize the beliefs that we all share. Notice this in verse number four. The Bible says, this particular chapter is called the oneness chapter. Verse number four says, There is one body, one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If, you'll, if you remember from your childhood, many times you may have seen these, but it'll be two pictures that look nearly identical with one another. But one picture is the one by which you are to go by, and then the other picture has very subtle differences in it. 
sometimes it'll be you've got a spot, maybe a banana or you've got a spot, something, you know, this is out of place or this is different than the picture. And the whole goal of the puzzle is to see what is different about the other picture. And I'm afraid that in churches, what we've done is instead of looking for similarities, we've looked for differences. And I think the reason, or at least one of the reasons, chapter 4 here, speaking of unity, speaks of things that we all agree on, by the way. There's one body, that's the body of Christ. That's this church, we make up the body of Christ. Uh, uh, some of us are, are uh, uh, more important or more helpful, uh, not, not more important, may I say that better. Some of us are more visible body parts, but we're all functioning body parts. We all work to accomplish so that the body of Christ can grow and, 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 and be strengthened and mature. We all work together so that the body of Christ may be complete. There's one body, there's one spirit. Well, this obviously refers to the Spirit of God who effectually works in the lives of believers and empowers them to accomplish the purposes that the body of Christ needs accomplished. The Bible goes on to say uh, the third uh, unity is this, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. That means that one day Jesus will return and we're all looking for that day. Titus, uh, Titus chapter number two, verse 13 puts it like this, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our savior, Jesus Christ. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord you'll see in verse number five. There's one Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ over the body of Christ, the New Testament church. That is the Lord here referred to. Uh, verse number five, uh, number five, it says one faith. We all share the faith and it's the same faith that the apostles delivered to the, uh, to the, the saints of God and, and the saints of God took what the apostles delivered, the truth of God's word and began to implement it and practice it. And the same truths that Paul and Peter and, and James stood for are the same truths that you and I believe today in 21st century America. There's one faith, there's one baptism. This is probably the most divisive of all of the seven, but in my opinion, it is the baptism by water. This is speaking of when you go and you're baptized, you say, Brother Andrew, why do you believe that? I believe it because it's speaking of unity in the church and you cannot be a part of the New Testament Baptist Church unless you are baptized into it. Salvation is the door to heaven. Baptism is the door to the church. Had somebody just last week call me and say, Brother Andrew, I need to be baptized. I've been putting it off because I've been ashamed for a long time. I, I knew I need to be baptized. I'm, I've just been putting it off. But I, Brother Andrew, I'm ready to get baptized. And I thought to myself, praise God. I fought the same battle. I faced the same struggle. And I'm so glad that somebody's actually going to take the first step in believer's baptism. And then from there, grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is one faith, one baptism. The, the final one here mentioned is uh, one God and father of all. Why do you think it mentions God as the father more than just that is his proper title? I believe it is because the Bible is saying that we are all part of the same family. And what we do is we look at our picture, we come to church and we look at our church and we, we kind of 
put everybody up for evaluation. We say, well, they think like this. They do this. They like going here. This is kind of, you know, they're a Ford guy. They're a Chevy guy. They're a Ram guy. And, you know, this is different than us. And, and we find all of the things that make them different from us. Oh, you know, he grew up in a different area. He's not quite like me. They won't think like me. And we find and we nitpick sometimes to the point of absurdity. We say that's how they're different. That's why we'll never, ever get along. That is foolish. The Bible is here teaching us to find the things we have in common and build from there. Don't pick apart the things that we don't have in common. Yeah, we're all different, but that's what makes us special. If we were all toes, we would have no hands. If we were all kidneys, we would have no livers. If we were all epidermal layers, we would have no eyeballs. I don't even really know what that is. I think it's your skin, but we'll go on from there. I'm getting out of theology, getting into biology, and I should just not do that at all. But my point is this, we can't all be alike or else we would serve the exact same role in the same church. One of the greatest problems in America is when you move to a new town, you look for a church that fits your needs. And you say, I want to go where everybody's kind of like me. No, no, no. Go somewhere where God wants you to be so that you can fill a role that God wants you to fulfill. If you're just like everyone else, there is a segment of the community that your church will never, ever reach. The church says we ought to build off of those things that we share in common, not those things that we have different. If the church is to be a church like God would want, we must endeavor to keep unity amongst believers. We're not working hard at it, hard enough at it, I can tell you. And here's, I want you to notice, the Bible says it like this in verse number three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Two problems I see there. Number one, this passage means that the church at Ephesus had unity and they should do whatever they could to not lose it. And I'm not sure we have unity at Joshua Baptist Church. But if we don't have unity, we ought to do everything in our power to get unity. And not only do I say that, see that the Bible says that they keep unity, but I also notice this. Unity does not come because we're one in, uh, in goals. Unity does not come because we are one in the things that we like or the the places that we want to minister. Unity comes, notice from verse number three, of the Spirit. The only church that is unified is one that is unified by spirit fullness. The reason churches are so different, the reason churches are not unified is because we have some members that are full of the Spirit and other members that are full of something else entirely. Preacher puts it like this, what are you full of? We cannot be unified if we are not indwelt by the same thing. If one person is so carnal and the other is spiritual, the Bible says these two things don't go together. Light hath no communion with darkness. A church needs to be spirit-filled. We must endeavor to keep unity. Number two, we're at the second point. We must endeavor to work together. 
You say, Brother Andrew, that sounds just like the last point. Oh, it's not. We didn't mention anything about work. Oh, it's going to take a lot of work to be unified, but I think as we submit to the Lord and His will for our life, I just think we'll love what God loves when we submit to God. And, and God loves you, and even though you may not be lovable, and some of you are very hard to love, if I am loving God the way I should, I will love the things that God loves. And so it'll take work, but I believe it will occur that if we submit to the Spirit of God, we will find unity, okay? But now the Bible says this, we should endeavor to work together. Thirteen different times in the New Testament, the Bible uses this term and it's translated differently in different places. Sometimes it is laborers together. Uh, We are laborers together with God, the Apostle Paul uses at one time. Sometimes it is fellow laborers. Sometimes it is helpers. But the word is the same. It is this, synergos. Sounds a lot like an English word from which we get it, its uh, root, we get that word synergy from. And the idea and the mission of the local church is that we would work together to accomplish the purpose of God for this church. And if we're going to work together, we must understand what our roles are. And there is number one, roles for leadership. Notice in verse number 9, or verse number 11, I'm sorry. And he gave some apostles. Now the apostolic office was held by the original members of the disciples, um, excluding Judas, obviously. Matthias would have taken that role, but they were apostles. The apostle Paul was an apostle, it's pretty easy to tell from his name, the Apostle Paul. But he was an apostle as well. The Bible mentions just a handful of other men uh, that were apostles, but, but the word apostle means someone that is sent. And what I believe it's saying is someone that was sent directly by the commission of Jesus Christ. Peter was given a commission by Jesus that he would be an instrumental leader in the New Testament church and These men, they were able to perform miracles. And and by the way, they didn't just go around performing miracles to see people happy. Most every time a miracle occurred, it was to prove their authority so that they could preach the Bible. They could give the word of God out. And when they were able to perform a miracle in the presence and sight of people, they said, well, if you're able to do that, surely God is with you. So it was kind of like God's stamp of approval on their ministry. And that was the apostolic office by the way, apostles do not exist anymore. That, long, that office is long passed away. So next time you see Benny Hinn slap somebody in the head and take away their uh, disease, I'm sorry to tell you, he's putting himself in a role in an office that is no longer around. It does not exist anymore. I do believe, however, that the prayer of the righteous will heal the sick. I don't go to these hospital visits and pray that God heals them Uh, without understanding that God can heal them. But uh, the apostles, verse number 11 mentions, was one of the key leaders in the early New Testament church. And then the Bible says, and some prophets. Now, prophets was also a role in the early church. It was not the same as apostles. These prophets were men given to the church. They had special insight into scriptural understanding. And you've got to know that when you're reading the book of Acts, 
None of the New Testament existed yet. Right? As the New Testament was written, it was sent from prison by Paul to churches, right? And even then it was not recognized as scripture. It was recognized as an epistle written from the apostle Paul to encourage churches in one way or another. And it was not until much after that we actually had the canon of what we now know as the New Testament. So scripture was not around yet. And so these prophets helped and they're deep understanding of Old Testament uh, scripture and their application to New Testament principles. And they would help these churches understand very difficult concepts. And the Apostle Paul would often write, and I believe these prophets were gifts to the church to help them understand these things. The Bible mentions these types of men, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Spirit had a a direct influence in their ministry, and these men were gifts to the church. Neither the apostolic office or the office of a prophet exists in the New Testament church any longer. When you read the New Testament, you've got to understand that is such a time of transition. I mean, the things that have been taught for, for centuries are changing. And it's not like Jesus just changed his mind. It's that everything pointed to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, he has fulfilled all that the Old Testament was. And so they're having to learn new types of everything because they just failed to see it in the Old Testament. And for instance, they failed to see Jesus as the Passover lamb. And so these men are helping them understand that. But both of these offices, I believe the apostles were to help bring in the New Testament and the prophets were to help bring some out of the Old Testament. But these offices no longer exist. If some guy comes up to you and says that he can read your palm for $1.50 and he'll tell you what's going on, he's not a prophet from God. These two offices no longer exist, but there are some offices that do exist. And they are these, verse number 11... He gave some apostles and some prophets. And by the way, we still profit from what these men did. Profit, P-R-O-F-I-T. We still have, because every time we read a book of the Bible in the New Testament, we're profiting from the apostles' ministry, right? It's the doctrine that the apostles passed down to us. But now these men do have an influence and a place in the modern church that is in existence today. Verse number 11, and some evangelists. Now, as I study my Bible, I would say that the, the, the role and office of an evangelist has changed somewhat. It seems to me as I study God's word that the evangelist in many cases was an assistant to an apostle. Now, they were a traveling preacher, but these men would have been helpers in the ministry, those synergos, the co-laborers. For instance, Titus was an evangelist. Uh, I believe that Timothy was an evangelist. That's what the Bible says. Hey, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. The Bible says that. And why is that? Because he didn't have these particular gifts that the Apostle Paul had, but he still was a traveling preacher and he would go around. And, and really, it's kind of like they were a bit more of a missionary. They'd go into to places and they'd preach the gospel. and They'd help establish churches. And that was the role of the evangelist in Scripture. 
I also believe that today the role of the evangelist in, in Scripture or in the modern church is quite the same. They are to travel, they are to preach, or not to be tied directly to one church or one pulpit, but they are to sometimes come to the church and deliver a hard message. A hard message that might be hard to understand. By the way, the good thing about evangelists is they can come in, blow you up, and you can't get mad at the preacher for it. I do think the the way we understand evangelists has changed. Now, I don't think we're taking it out of Scripture uh, or out of the scriptural context, but evangelists were and are a gift to the church. Once you see not only evangelists, but in verse number 11, we find some evangelists and some pastors. Now, pastors in Scripture have five different titles given to them. I believe they describe the five different roles that the pastor is to have. The word we get pastor from is the Greek word poimen. It means shepherd. Now, Christ is the chief shepherd of the church, but the pastor is the under shepherd. As Christ is the head of the church, the the under shepherd, the pastor uh, oversees the flock. And that's what the Bible says. Feed the flock of God, taking the oversight thereof. And overseer is another one of his roles. The Bible says, if any man desire the work of a bishop or the office of a bishop, he desireth a good thing. And the bishop there speaks of the pastor's office. It also speaks of him being able to proclaim God's truth and teach God's truth. And so in scripture, we find that there are several different roles that the pastor has, but his primary responsibility for the church is this, to teach and preach God's word. And you say, that's all we're paying you for? Yeah, I'm getting a really good deal on this thing. Price per sermon is unfortunately not in your favor. But the Bible teaches that the pastor's primary responsibility was that he would preach God's word. And he would oversee the church in a way that he would see when maybe certain false doctrines would creep in unawares and he was to combat that. He's supposed to make sure that no, nobody begins to drift away or nobody begins to uh, 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 behave in a way that is unseemly for the church and for Christ, more importantly. That's the role of the pastor. And his primary ministry is viewed Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. Say, so, Brother Andrew, you've got a lot more responsibility than that. You're right. The modern pastor has taken on a lot of more uh, hats. But I'll say this in Acts chapter 6. The Bible speaks of the apostles and they're gathered together and they say, it is not meet for us to leave the word of God and prayer to serve tables. So they appoint out deacons to help in the administration of the ministry. Because there arose a discussion between the, the Gentiles and the Jews that the widows were neglected because the pastors were so, were so busy and they're so studious in their study of God's word and they were so focused on praying for the congregation. They were neglecting the duties that everybody else had placed upon them, by the way. And that was where the deacons were supposed to step in and help. The primary responsibility of the pastor is to feed the flock of God. And then the Bible tells us of another office. The Bible says some pastors and teachers. Now, every pastor should be a teacher. I get so, I just, 
I don't know, maybe I'm too critical, but I get so uh, cracked up by some of these churches who have an executive pastor and a teaching pastor. Those are not mutually exclusive roles. And it's good if a guy has a gift of teaching, but one of the primary roles of the pastor was that he could teach God's Word. You say, Brother Andrew, you're not doing a very good job of it tonight. Well, I can't help. I'm just using all the gifts I've got, okay? But the pastor is to teach, but the Bible also speaks of a secondary office, and it speaks of teachers. People who were to assist in the work of the ministry, to, who had an understanding of God's Word and an ability to communicate God's Word. Some people have this gift. It's, in fact, it's a spiritual gift that God gives to some and does not give to others. No matter how hard some people work, they'll never be able to carry a tune in a bucket. And that's okay. No matter how hard some people work, you'll never be able to be a good teacher. But there are some people that are. And guess what? We need singers and we need teachers. We need servants and we need encouragers. We need people who will love people. We need all of these and they're all spiritual gifts, okay? So we've just got to work together. The teachers assist in the teaching of God's word. So these are the roles and the responsibilities of the leadership of the church. Now I want you to see this. Verse number 12. And he gave verse number 11. And then we'll get to verse number 12. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. So every office, we're almost done. So everybody can uh, just kind of, you know, think that we're almost done and pay attention a little bit more. But uh, he gave all of these offices, apostles, uh, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers, all of them work together for the purpose of perfecting the saints or equipping the saints. When you come to church, you're getting ammo. You're learning, or hopefully you are. You're gaining knowledge. And hopefully this knowledge is maturing you as a believer. And, and the sermons and the teaching of God's word is to uh, perfect you, equip you, and mature you as a believer. Now notice what the role, we've seen the role of the leadership. Now notice what the role of the saints are. And contrary to Catholic belief, a saint is anyone that is saved. You don't have to wait some 180 years to get elected to be a saint. You don't have to wait till you've done some miracle no, no, no. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. And here's the role of the saints. All these teachers, the pastors, the evangelists, they all work together for the perfecting or the equipping of saints, comma, for the work of the ministry. Now, do not misunderstand this verse. It is not saying... Pastors were given to the church for the work of the ministry. No. Pastors are given to the church to mature and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What we have done so horribly wrong is somehow the clergy have become responsibility for the progress and the productivity of God's church. That's always been the body's responsibility. It's always been the individual believers that make up that church. 
You say, Brother Andrew, I want you to come visit my niece that's in the hospital. That's fine and I'll gladly do it. But the idea is that you could do it yourself. Brother Andrew, somebody's sick in the church and they really need you to go by and visit them. And I will gladly do that. But that is not my primary responsibility, regardless of what modern American pastors do. My primary responsibility is to pray for this church and get God's leadership for this church and preach to this church and cast a vision for this church. But your primary responsibility is to work in the ministry. Look at verse number 12 again. I wish I were making it up because I love going and making hospital visits. But the Bible says, For the perfecting of the saints were all of these offices given so that the saints might be equipped for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Did you know every time you go make a hospital visit, it matters to someone? It edifies them, it lifts them up, it strengthens them. It helps them. It's good if I'm there. Really, the expectation has become that I would be there, and I'm completely fine with that. But what if you, somebody that they don't even really have a great relationship, what if you show up, and you're there for them in their time of need? I'll never forget, several years ago, we had a bar that was wanting to move into Joshua. It was called the Renegade Saloon. And preacher made some announcements. We became aware that there was like a city council meeting and we were going to go and show our support as a church that night and not support that it would come in, by the way, just to clarify that. Um, but we were there to voice our, uh, our beliefs on this matter. And preacher actually got up there and he actually delivered a sermon a little bit. Three reasons why I don't believe that that we need this bar in town. I remember one of them was because it destroys families. And uh, we were in there that night, and man, there was a whole passel of people showed up for that. I mean, their, their little city council office in there, I mean, it might seat 25, 30 people at the most. Well, we probably had 50 there just for this issue. I'll never forget, there was a few folks there from the bar, and, and the, the owners, and those folks that were trying to get the approval, and And man, they were just so overwhelmed that we showed up to voice our opinion against them. They were angry, they were hateful, but man, we showed up in full force for that. And I'm proud of our church for doing that. But I wonder why it takes something that large for our church to get unified behind. Wouldn't it be crazy if the nurses have to come to us at the hospital and say, hey, you can't be standing in the hallway. You say, well, there ain't no room in the room. Everybody's in there already. Wouldn't it be nice if Miss Jennings knew you cared? And she knows I care, I go by. Wouldn't it be nice if the church took some of the responsibility? That it wasn't just the pastor's role to care for the flock of God. That, that maybe the flock would care for themselves. That, that maybe they would have a love for each other and they'd be so unified, so, so in love with God and love for people of God. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, they, they would fall in love with Christ and they would fall in love with the people of Christ. And we would begin to show up for one another when we need each other. That I would not be the only one asking when you need prayer. That I would not be the only one communicating prayer requests. That I would not be the only one that says, hey, Brother Andrew, we need you to show up. I'm praying this year that we will become unified for our love for each other and our labor together for Christ. 
I wonder sometimes if we're doing church right. And I am not the judge. I am not the one who has ultimate say. But every time I wonder, I'm discouraged by the answer I come up with. Because we are not unified the way we need to be. We are not working together the way that we need to. We destroy each other. We tear each other down on social media. We criticize others behind their back. God help us. 